Our scripture text this morning is Luke 5, verses 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and lie him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the man, Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. You know, forgiveness is a very unnatural thing. To forgive people, to, to just let bygones be bygones, to, to move on and to forgive people, is very unnatural. I mean, do you struggle uh, when you forgive? Do you easily forget? Uh, when you forgive, do you, do you just move on and it, it doesn't affect the relationship or does it still kind of hang with you? You know, we're a people that easily uh, keep wanting to dig up the past. We often don't want to let things go uh, that have been done to us that have been negative. We see this in extreme measure over the history of the church. You know, John Wycliffe was a uh, theologian, English theologian in the 15th century. And uh, he began to develop. He, he was called the morning star of the Reformation because he was 100 years prior uh, to the John Calvins and the Martin Luthers in introducing these ideas like uh, the Bible should be translated into the language of the people and that salvation is by faith alone. And things like the bread and the wine don't actually become the body and blood of Christ. And he began to have these, these what we would call now evangelical or Protestant teachings, and he was beginning to teach them. The Catholic Church find it to be very, very odious. And so they, of course, excommunicated him. But, and he died, sadly, prior to translating the Bible into English. But it didn't stop the Catholic Church, of course, from still being angry and bitter at his work at starting this Protestant movement. It was 43 years after he died that they dug up his bones to burn them. Now, that is digging up the past. That, that is hanging on the things for way, way long. Do you struggle with forgiveness? Do you struggle to let things go? and to walk in forgiveness with one another, especially at Christmas time. Seems like all the old stuff just comes up again. But this is the beauty of this miracle story. It's so unlike the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is bringing a kingdom 
<clears throat> that is marked by forgiveness, by forgiveness. Now, let me give you the context because we haven't been going through the Gospel of Luke. We've just been looking at these miracle stories during this time of Advent. The context is that Jesus, really the first three chapters of Luke, is speaking about his birth narrative, and in chapter 4 he begins to enter ministry. At the end of chapter 4 he explains that he has come to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Here's what he says in verse 43. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. In other words, he's telling us, this is why I have come from heaven. I've come from heaven to preach the gospel. A, a gospel of good news that we can be forgiven through faith. We can be reconciled to God. The sinner can be drawn back to God. That's the good news that he came to preach. And that began his ministry of preaching in towns and cities all over Israel. And we kind of picked that up in our passage in verse 17 where he says, and on one of those days as he was teaching. You, you kind of get the idea there's a pattern here. And he's beginning to preach about this kingdom. Now, mind you, his popularity was beginning to grow. And so uh, did the attention of the religious leaders, right? So that's why it says that they were religious leaders. They were Pharisees from Judea and Galilee and even Jerusalem. They were coming to see him. They were coming to hear about this message of this kingdom of forgiveness for sinners. Now, listen. This is 75 miles away, some of these guys. They're traveling by foot. It's like you and I walking to Greensboro. I, I mean, they're very interested in hearing what this man has to say. I don't think they're coming because they're hungry to be reconciled to God as, a, as much maybe as investigating him. Why do I say that? Well, it says that they were sitting in a room crowded with people, not even room at the door. They are sitting. It could be almost seen as kind of discourteous. There's so many people here. Stand up and make room for others. They're sitting as in judgment over Jesus. That's kind of the setting of the scene. It's a miracle story, <clears throat> but it's a, it's a controversy narrative. There's going to be a controversy between the two. What Jesus is going to show us in this miracle story is, is that he's come to declare forgiveness is possible through faith, that we can be forgiven by God. He's also come to show us that he, has, he can demonstrate the power that he can forgive. That his forgiveness is not on paper. There's power to forgive. So he's going to come and declare a kingdom of forgiveness, and he's going to demonstrate the power that he has to forgive. So let's look at this idea, and then we'll look at the reactions of the people. I always love the reactions of the crowds because it's easy to find ourselves. Where would, be, where would we be in that scene? Okay, so he comes to declare. Notice the story. So these friends of a paralytic, Luke doesn't tell us how many, Mark does. There's four of them. They're bringing this paralytic. He's suffering from paralysis. His legs don't work, and, and they can't get to Jesus. They want to get to Jesus. They're seeking him, but they can't get to him. The room's full. There's no room. Even the door is jammed. They cannot get near hauling this guy to Jesus. And so what they do, like Zacchaeus, remember the story in Luke 19 was Zacchaeus, he was a short little man, right? And, and he wanted to see Jesus too. And so he climbed a tree. Well, well, they decide to climb these stairs. Now, it's not uncommon for stairs to be on the, on the side of a house in Palestine, and they climb the stairs to get to the roof. Now, you know, there are roofs on houses for the purposes of being like an additional room. You could go up there in the cool of the evening. So they go up there, 
And, uh, and I just want to give you a little lay of the land here. A, a roof on one of these Palestinian houses could be as much as two feet thick, right? So they're laying, you know, you get timbers, pieces of timber, maybe every two to three feet, and then crosswise you have branches and twigs and reeds, and then you pack about a foot plus of dirt on it, and then it, it bakes in the Middle Eastern sun. It gets nice and hard, and if they have the financial ability, they put tiles on it to make it a nicer room and also to protect it from rain and the elements. So you can imagine when they go up on this roof, when it says that they remove some tiles to let the man down, this isn't a skylight they're working with. I mean, they're digging a hole in this man's roof. I, I mean, get a handle on how hungry they were to see Jesus Christ. It's like somebody just going up on your roof and digging a hole and lowering a love seat through it. You know, you would not just be, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, can you imagine? You get upset when someone spills coffee on your carpet. Uh, how about like wood and, and branches and dirt coming down in your house? They want to see Christ. And, and after all this work and the sun starts to shoot through this hole in the roof, then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, what would they have said? What would the people have said? Hello? You kind of missed the point? The man's legs don't work? You're, what are you worried about sins for? He needs to be healed? Isn't it amazing how different Jesus thinks than we do? You know, that Jesus sees our, our fundamental problems as being different than we often perceive them? He actually sees that our fracture from God is, is more important than the man's paralysis. Do you feel that way? I mean, when you prioritize your needs and you think about all the things that you need to have done to be happy in this life, does forgiveness of sins rank at the top like they would for Christ? I mean, many of us, we think, well, if I could just get a little bit more money or have maybe a little bit more recognition in my office or perhaps if I, if I just had deeper relationships with people or if my marriage was maybe just a little bit stronger or, or if I just had stronger health, if I was just feeling better, then life would be just swimmingly sweet. And, and yet Jesus doesn't seem to go that direction. You know, one author wrote kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way, he says, I think if God wants to play a, a rotten joke on you, he might just grant your deepest wish. You know, what do you wish for most? What are you most thankful for? According to Jesus, fundamentally, ultimately, it's the nature of sin being reconciled. It's being forgiven of our sins. It, it's not that Jesus is unaware of the trouble that a paralytic would have in that culture. He would have probably seen it more acutely than we would have. He knows the struggle that we have in these physical problems. He's just showing us a priority, and he cares about us. He cares about our physical maladies, and that's why he would, he'll ultimately heal the man. But let's not put the cart in front of the horse. He came to bring about the forgiveness of sins. He came to proclaim it and to deliver it. Do you see the forgiveness of your sins 
and their reconciliation with God as being more vital than anything else in your life. I pray you do. I, I pray that, that if you're here today and you haven't been reconciled to God, that you would consider your sins. And, and, and don't, please don't make any mistake here. You know, we often think, well, the paralytic, how could he have sinned, really? He can't even walk. Oh, you don't need to walk to sin. I mean, you can lust really well from a mat. You can envy. You can lie. You can, you can, you can get bitter towards people. You know, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't lust. That is committing adultery. Or anger is committing murder. You know, we don't necessarily sin with our hands. We sin with our hearts. We, we sin with our desires. All of us need to be forgiven. That's the message. He's come to deliver. He's come to declare forgiveness to us. Have you experienced the forgiveness of God? I mean, that, that's, that's why Jesus came, that we would be reconciled to God. But he hasn't just come to declare the forgiveness of God. He's also come to demonstrate his power and authority to forgive sins. Notice the controversy in the passage. It's with these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. They're kind of looking at Jesus with a degree of suspicion. And, and they take issue. Uh, by the way, they don't take issue with the paralytic being a sinner. Uh, they would believe that. Uh, they just would not believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive his sins. That's what they would take issue with. And that's why they're accusing him of blasphemy. Blasphemy because Jesus is doing something that only God should be doing. You see, they were right about that. They were right that sin can only be forgiven by God. You know, a lot of times in our life, we simply think that when we sin against our spouse, or when we sin against a, a brother or a sister, we just think we need to reconcile with them. There is a sin against one another that is still against God because we're all, we've all been created by God. And so they were right to say that God had to forgive the sins. They were wrong in that they failed to see Jesus as God. They missed the day of their visitation. God was dwelling among them, and they missed it. They didn't think he was God, and they accused him of blasphemy. So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, he shows, he demonstrates his divine authority to forgive sins first by perceiving their thoughts. He knew what was on their heart. They were charging him with blasphemy. They were, they were denying his whole mission to bring about reconciliation through forgiveness. He didn't hear them in a corner mumbling about to themselves. He read their hearts. Do you know how freaky that would be? For right now, someone to read to you everything you're thinking and you haven't opened your mouth? Can you imagine how that should have startled them? That he brings to them right then and there what they're thinking? That's divine sovereignty. He has authority. He reads it. And you know what he does? Gently, he asks them a question. He says, what's easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say, get up and walk? Well, obviously, we know the answer to that, right? The answer that he's leading us in is to say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I can't objectively, I can't verify it. I, I can't know if, if it's true or not. And so Jesus 
demonstrates his power by healing the paralytic and by saying, rise up and walk. But notice what he says there. It's in verse 24. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus doesn't heal by proxy. He doesn't heal by invoking the name of God. He says, I say to you, I have authority to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and walk. And the man got up and walked. One word of Jesus infuses life into atrophied into dead muscles. This wasn't a progressive healing. Take two aspirin, call me in a week, you'll be feeling better. This is get up, I can play in a soccer match right now. Instantly healed. His word infused life into his body. He performs the outward healing to show that he did the inward work. One author said it this way, he did the miracle that they could see, that they would believe, he did the miracle that they could not see. That's Jesus. Now, before we throw these teachers and these Pharisees kind of to the dogs, they may have been struggling with Jesus because he's just pronouncing healing. He's just declaring forgiveness. He's just saying you're forgiven. Now, you know, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee, a Jew at the time, would have understood that forgiveness cannot be granted without the shedding of blood. That's right there in Leviticus 17.11. The whole temple system it was marked by sacrifice, that you come and you bring a lamb, and the hands of the priest are put on the lamb, and the lamb is slain. All the people knew that forgiveness could only come from God through the death of a perfect sacrifice. And, and, and the, the animal had to be slain. That's the whole temple system. And so maybe they were struggling there. But remember, we're early in his ministry. Jesus in Matthew 12 is going to say, I tell you the truth. Something greater than the temple has come among you. Jesus is saying he's the one who will be sacrificed to bring about sins. That's why he has the authority to grant it, because he's going to earn it. And he's going to earn it by laying down his own life. He is replacing the whole temple because he is the temple. He's the sacrifice unto God. This is why we can be so confident in the forgiveness that he has the authority to give because he's the one that earns it. And don't miss in 24 when he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has come. Uh, that Son of Man is a, is a critical uh, self-identification of Jesus. All those Jews would have known he was referencing Daniel 7. There's a, there's a really cool scene. Go back and see it. In Daniel 7, there's the Ancient of Days, God on the throne. And one, like a son of man, comes to the Ancient of Days. And God gives to this son of man all of the kingdoms and all of the glory and all of the power. He shares it with this son of man. So when Jesus says it, you may know the son of man has come. In other words, this son of man that they waited for and they would worship forever, is the one who will lay down his life so that we might be forgiven by God. So he demonstrates his authority to forgive sins by healing so that they would see he's the Son of Man. Now, if you're a Christian here, knowing this, it should shred through the guilt that you carry from past sins. It should shred it into pieces 
Because the one that has pronounced forgiveness to you is the one who died for it. He's not going to go back on what he has done. If you're a Christian here, and you have placed your faith in Christ, and you've sought him to be reconciled to God, walk in the joy of the forgiveness that's yours. Enjoy. You know, when, when you go back over your life and you think of all those things, sometimes you're tempted to believe, I don't, I don't know that he could forgive that one. Or even going forward, why am I walking in the same sin? And yet you feel convicted and you repent. And, and you think, I, I, can he really forgive me? Am I really going to be in, in good stead with God on that final day? The one who has bled says, yes, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you, he says. You're cleansed. You're pure. We don't feel pure. But remember, he has borne our sin and shame. You know, so when you see the perceiving ability of Christ, for the Christian, that should cause you no fear. The fact that he can read your thoughts, let it free you to confess to him what you're even silent about. Even those things that you may be hesitant to speak even out loud over your sins. You can shout them out. He already knows them. And he still loves you. For the non-Christian here, if you're here and you're visiting, I appreciate you being here. What do you do with something like this? Do you feel that you need forgiveness? I mean, according to the recent surveys, most Americans feel guilty over something. Uh, 34% don't know what they feel guilty about. They just feel guilty. But we do have this struggle with guilt. What do you do with the things that you wish you hadn't have done? What do you do with it? I mean, you look back at your life, and you've done things you, know, you kind of cringe over. We all have boxes of them, things that we did that we wish we didn't do. What do you do with those? Do you justify them? Do you blame them on circumstances? Do you blame them on other people? Or do you think, no, I'm going to try better next year? as we love New Year's resolutions, I'm going to do better next year, and yet we fail again next year, and then the guilt just becomes heavier and just begins to do a pile on. What, what do you do? See, the message of the Christian faith, and sadly it's poorly communicated often, is that Jesus didn't come to condemn sinners, he came to save them. He came to forgive them. He came to draw them to himself, that we would find forgiveness with God and be reconciled and begin to follow Christ by faith. Blaise Pascal, of course, was a French philosopher, and he wrote these words that I found very, very startling. He says, <clears throat> It's equally dangerous for a man to know God without knowing his own wretchedness. It's also uh, equally dangerous to know his own wretchedness without knowing God. So for those of you who are burdened by your sin, you know, Jesus says clearly, he says, come to me, all you who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and I am gentle of heart, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Appeal to Christ. That's what it is to become a Christian. It is to recognize that I have been created by God, and I have lived my life with absolute indifference to him, or perhaps even defiance to him. We all have hearts that are just prone to wander. And it's to repent and say, God, forgive me. 
there is greater joy at your right hand than all the things I've tried to draw out of, out of this life to provide me joy and meaning and purpose. I want to know you as a father. That's what it means. And to repent of your sins, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Like the tax collector at the back of the temple just saying, have mercy on me, Father. He went home justified. He went home forgiven. So we have Jesus in this beautiful miracle story. He simply does two things. He declares that he's come to bring forgiveness. And then he demonstrates that he has power to forgive. And that demonstration is in the healing of the man. But it really will be demonstrated at the cross itself. And have you given thought to this? That the healing of the man, would it have come about if the Pharisees did not question his authority? I think it might not have. The greater issue had been taken care of. He had been forgiven. And he will be reconciled to God fully. The healing did not come out of faith. People weren't saying, I've got enough people praying with me. We have faith to believe. The healing came from disbelief to show that he had the power. That was the purpose of the healing. Showing us the greater issue is to be reconciled to God through faith to receive forgiveness. Now let's look at the players in this story just for a minute and see where you might be in this. You, you have the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They're strangely silent. Do you notice that? There's nothing said about them. They don't say anything. They're not repenting. They're not, oh, you know, we totally missed the mark. So sorry. And no repentance, no backing away, no apology, no, no nothing. They just sit there. I don't know, maybe they were grinding their teeth. It, it, makes, it makes me aware that the religious need to be warned that those among us who are religious, we need to be warned. You know, we walk in the faith a long time. We may be at church. We may be doing many, many good things. And we forget the need that we have for this forgiveness. You know, I, I remember to my mind came that uh, the um, verse where Jesus said to the Pharisees and the tax collectors, he goes, you know, sinners... Tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. He says that to the religious leaders. Prostitutes, they're selling themselves for money. They are entering before you. Tax collectors, they're thieves. They're scoundrels. They're taking money from their own people to pad their own pockets, and they are getting into the kingdom ahead of you religious. Can you imagine the slap in the face that would have been? We are apt to forget our own wretchedness. We're apt to forget our own need for forgiveness. Years into the faith, let me warn you, let's go back and remind ourselves of the need that we have to be reconciled to God. These did not. They're strangely silent. That's a warning for us. It's a warning for the church. Many in the church that are faithful in coming, but they may not be trusting in God for their forgiveness. It's a good time to actually test yourselves and see if you're in the faith. That's what Paul says. I'm not trying to put fear in anybody's life. I'm just trying to call us to consider. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, test yourselves, see if you're in the faith. But, but the other group that I want you to notice is these onlookers. These onlookers who at the end are saying, you know, their amazement seized them. They glorified God. They were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. They're excited. Is this faith? 
Should we read this as saving faith? I don't know. My fear is no. They were amazed. They were overwhelmed. But, but I don't know that they saw the power of Jesus uh, to forgive, or the power of Jesus to heal, uh, to be the power of Jesus to forgive. They're not asking for forgiveness. They're not lining up. They're not saying after the paralytic, would you please forgive me too? Listen, I've done this. I've been an adulterer. I've been a thief. I've been a liar. I've been a scoundrel. I've been a slanderer. Would you forgive me? Can you forgive me too? You don't see him lining up. They're pretty amazed over the flash in the pan, this guy walking out with his mat, but they don't seem to look at Jesus differently as we ought to look. His teacher, wow, powerful guy, had healing, just display that, but they don't seem to repent before. It's almost like this. It's almost like <clears throat> if you've ever come out of a sermon and you told somebody, hey, that was really a great sermon. But did you do anything with it? Did, did you repent? Did you, uh, did you thank God more for his glory because of what you heard? Uh, did you ask forgiveness for something that the, that the sermon was pointing out? You recognize, yeah, the sermon was a good sermon, but it did, didn't have any impact on what you did following. Because they were impressed, it was a great miracle, they glorified God and they did nothing with it. It didn't change anything in their life. I used to torture the kids after Sunday. This is what it's like to live in a pastor's home. Uh, we'd all drive home, and one of them would be bold enough to say, hey, great sermon, Dad, which hate the bones like that. They're horrible. I said, uh, thanks, honey. So what was great about it? It was like a cemetery. I mean, you didn't hear a word. When we hear God's word, when we see God's grace, it's meant to have a transformative effect on our life. For these onlookers, they were in front of God. They saw a miracle. They were amazed. And it appears that they did nothing with it other than shout out a couple attaboys to God and they went on with their life. The ones that are impressive to me is the paralytic and his friends. You know, these four friends, you know, it says, and when he saw their faith, you know, faith is visible. He saw their faith. He saw their diligence to find him. He saw that they weren't intimidated by religious leaders. They weren't intimidated by the crowds. They weren't even intimidated by the property destruction that they brought about to this man's house. They wanted to find Christ. They knew they needed him. I think they knew they needed him not for healing, but for forgiveness. Because it says when he saw their faith. It wasn't faith in healing. Jesus pronounced forgiveness. Not that they had faith that Jesus had done some miracles, but that he was the Messiah. Remember, healing the paralytic was an objective sign that the kingdom of God had come from Isaiah 35. These miracles that Jesus were doing, it was evidencing he's the Messiah bringing the kingdom. I think that's what they believed. I think that the healing was a freebie. It was one of those, you get an extra knife if you buy this set. It isn't the real deal. You, they weren't going to him for that. They were going to him for forgiveness. And I think that's where their joy was. And it says he went home. And Jesus told him, you go home like the demoniac. You go home and tell them what I've done for you. And he did that. He obeyed. He obeyed him. You, you see that faith. And you see the faith give birth to joy. 
there ought to be a joy in the Christian who knows he's been forgiven. If you know all of your sins have been washed away, there ought to be a joy. If you just go this afternoon, for example, to Luke chapter 7, and you see this prostitute come to Jesus, and he forgives her of her sins. He says, your faith has made you well. And she's the one weeping on his feet and drying his feet with her hair. And it says that her joy was great because she was forgiven much. And then he looks at the Pharisee in the room. And the Pharisee, Simon, he doesn't seem like a monster. He seems like a, a good, upstanding religious leader. But he also seems like he may have some self-righteousness because here's what Jesus says to him. He says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she loved, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, it, it's a good test for us. To the degree that we love God and have joy in God over what he's done for us, lets us know the degree to which we understand he saved us. And what has he saved us from? So, so, so the life of faith, this paralytic and his friends, is marked by a significant joy. Do you have affections for God? Affections don't come easy. We are easily distracted by all the lusts and the love that are in front of our eyes, especially at Christmas time. But do you have affections for God? I'm not asking you, do you have right theology? I'm saying, do you love the one of whom you believe? They go hand in hand. The greatest commandment is what? It's to love the Lord our God. And if we love the Lord our God, then go, as Augustine says, and do what you want. But not just did they have a joy, I think it probably meted out through an extension of forgiveness to others. You know, it's hard to be touched by the forgiveness of God and not want to walk in forgiveness to others. Now, I recognize the complexity of some of the hurts that you've come out of. Or maybe I should say I don't recognize it. But I do know that in life, we are deeply hurt by people and the situations are quite complex. But I would ask you to consider how is the forgiveness that you have received from God beginning to melt the coldness or soften the hardness of your soul towards reconciling with those with whom you have fractured relationships? This is the mark of the Christian, that they walk in moving first and forward towards reconciliation of all relationships. Again, we're coming up to Christmas time, which for many people is really a horrible time. It's a horrible time because we're back together again with people that we may not really enjoy that much. And we've never really reconciled. We're not really that close to, and it's very awkward and uncomfortable. But the Christian who has been aware, been made aware of the incredible forgiveness he has received, it should soften our soul to want to move with grace and mercy towards others. So we're marked by a joy, we're marked by an extension of mercy, and then we're marked really by helping others know this Christ. You know, aren't you just impressed by these four friends? I mean, don't we need friends like that? I mean, I mean you, reading this story, you are to see yourself, even though your legs may be strong, you're to see yourself as a paralytic, that you needed to be forgiven and healed. And you need friends. We need friends. That's the beauty of these new members. They're new friends to us. You ought to be carrying somebody because somebody has carried you. And, and what does it mean to carry somebody to Jesus? It means a ton of things. It means just by looking for opportunities 
to express the gospel to people. Folks, will it be awkward and uncomfortable? You know it will, especially in the family. But is he not worth it? Is he not worthy? You know he's worthy. The, 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 the church's role is not simply to dig wells and to build an orphan. It is to involve ourselves in the betterment of life, but primarily the church's role is to proclaim the message that they've been touched by, which is that there is forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Christ. So we need to be friends to others who are paralyzed and who need to find Christ. I, I would ask you just to pray even this afternoon, after you read Luke 7, a few of the things I've asked you to do, just who is one person that you can be a friend to? Even just to pray with them, to encourage them in the grace, over the grace that you see in their life. Jesus has come to both declare this forgiveness and demonstrate it. And he has, ultimately, in the cross. And that's why this season is so sweet. It reminds us he's come to establish a kingdom. The kingdom has been established. We're, we're part of it. The Christian is part of it. His kingdom is growing. And we just await for this king now to come back and to consummate, to complete his kingdom. And while we wait, let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's just take a minute now and perhaps use these few moments as a time perhaps to confess your sin or to just rejoice that he has forgiven you. But let it be a time where you see your affections swell for this great son of man.